Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you that you have said that where two or three are gathered in your name, you are here. However we may be feeling um, today, help us to know that you're here and that you love us, you value us, and you care about us. Help us to realize we can bring all our struggles to you. Would you bring a fresh revelation of yourself to us today? Amen. Okay, so what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about what is the gospel and uh, why can we trust Mark's gospel? Because we're in a series on Mark's gospel. You might have remember that last Sunday Sue spoke about who is Jesus and the transfiguration from Mark chapter 9. She spoke, I know I'm biased, but I thought she spoke really well. It was, it was great. But why did we start in, start in Mark chapter 9? Well, you might remember if you were around last year, we did Mark chapter 1 verse 1 to 8, last spring. So that's why we're starting in chapter 9 now. But actually chapter 9 is a pivotal chapter in the book of Mark because up until chapter 1 to, to chapter 9, Jesus is in the north of Galilee and is talking about himself. Who is he? He's asking those questions. He's doing things and people are thinking about, who is Jesus? And then after that, he is on the journey to Jerusalem, and then there's the final week in Jerusalem. And that's where we're going to be going with our series that we've called Recapture Wonder, which is Jesus. So we're, that's where we're going to go over the next few weeks uh, in our series in Mark's Gospel. Oh, I was stood in the wrong place. What? Sorry about that. I'm back here. <laughs> so... We're going to look at what is the gospel, and we're going to have a group session in a moment, which is why you need tables and a pen and paper. And um, so, but really simply, the English word gospel means um, good spell. Spell was a story in those days. And so it's, it means good story. And the, and the Greek is euangelion, which comes from two words, next slide on the PowerPoint, I think, um, which combines angelos, like angel, herald, evangelism, um, comes from that as well, that angelos was announcing good news, announcing news, and you means joyful, and that's where you get euangelion, that's what the Greek word is, it means good news. And as we'll see a bit later on, it wasn't mainly used as a religious word but actually was a political or secular word so we'll, we'll look at that in a moment but first of all I want you to go into groups um, and answer s some questions so we'll go to the next slide I think Sue right so I want you to try and answer this question what is the gospel what does that mean to you and there are I just tell you there's a whole load of different answers so just put down on paper what you think the gospel is all right so you've got a few minutes to do that
Okay, so there's another question here for you, which um, might help you jog your memories and thoughts a bit more. So, very related. So, which one of these four categories would you primarily apply the term gospel? A bit low, are they? So, these are the story of Israel, the Bible, the story of Jesus, the plan of salvation, or the method of persuasion. Read those again. Are they too low for people? Can you see that better? The story of Israel, stroke the Bible. The story of Jesus, the plan of salvation, or the method of persuasion. So primarily. No, no, if you just think for a moment and chat in your groups. Okay, right, we'll come back into the, the group and if we can, I um, don't know how we're going to do this, but um, move this across a little bit. Okay, it's, um, so what do you think is the gospel? So Sue, perhaps you could come and write on this board, that would be fantastic. So, um, I'm going to come round and ask each group to give, you, give me one answer to what is the gospel, okay? So, Karen, what, um, ah, just, just give me one answer to, to, it doesn't have to be a long sentence, just a couple of words, okay? That, oh, hello. We, we thought that, you know, we, we would try to be imitators of Jesus by our actions, and that's all sort of wrapped up with the gospel and proclaiming the good news. Okay. With our actions proclaiming the good news, what about Fee, your group? Anything there, one, one thing about the gospel? A love story, brilliant, yeah, love it, yeah. Um, Emma? Jesus' declaration of love. Okay. That's very similar to the love story, maybe. Um, Sarah? Try and say something different than already there. The kingdom. Yeah. Very good. Sam? Andy? Message of truth to the world, God's kingdom arriving on the earth. Esther, Barney, Ben, <laughs> Hope, yeah. 
Gospel is hope, absolutely. What do you mean by hope? Is that just a wish? Story of hope, right? Okay. But which, which we're based on, yeah, not just a wish, but something that's happened probably. A certainty of hope. Yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. Steve? Oh, goodness me. Say that again. Hang on a minute. You say it. One man's account of Jesus the truth from four different focuses on the same story. So there's four Bach Gospels, four different focuses, all telling the same story, but telling it from a slightly different perspective. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Yep. So there's four perspectives on the story of Jesus. Okay. Now, are there any other things that you've got on your list that, are not, that Sue's not written up? Yep, it is a story to tell. Stories are very, very powerful. In fact, we live in a story, whether you know it or not. We all live in some meta-narrative, some story. It might be materialism. You're after what you get more stuff or the culture we live in. We all live in some bigger meta-narrative, some stories. So we, and, and the gospel story is one of those stories that we need to, tell and live out anything else any other group want to say anything else good news of jesus christ to die for our sins that's a that's a good bit of it isn't it oh yeah that's a very good one fulfillment of prophecy said steve steve said and bev was going to say something i think or And Steve had something about um, fulfilment of prophecy. Very good. And Bev's group, was there something? Life-changing, absolutely is life-changing. The gospel is life-changing, yeah. Okay, so what about the next question on there? So who would put their hand up and say... So the, maybe that's a bit too personal, putting your hand up, but um, um, so what did groups think were the primary aspect of the term of gospel out of these four things? Andy? Story of Jesus? Yeah, okay. Caroline, story of Jesus... Plan of salvation, yeah. Depends what you mean by the plan of salvation, actually. Because you could argue the whole Bible is a plan of salvation, and that's how sometimes we use it. Or is it how you personally enter into, the, into God's kingdom and know him personally? Preach Christ and him crucified, absolutely. So Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, doesn't he? Um, the most important thing is that Christ died 
for our sins according to the scriptures. Anyone else like to Ben? But sorry, Barney. Uh, we story of Jesus. Jesus is always the right answer, isn't he? <laughs> Sarah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Very good. Actually, this is from Scott McKnight's book, um, King Jesus Gospel. And he asks that question, but he doesn't answer it, ask it like that. He asks the question, um, which of these four categories would you describe as the gospel? And I thought I'd make it a bit harder for you to say which is the primary one, okay? So really, in many ways, the gospel involves all of those things. So that was a bit sneaky, really, wasn't it? Um, okay. So I'm just going to talk for about 10 minutes from Mark's gospel and then we're going to go into some other group times so and I think really I don't need to give this talk because you've just told you've just put it out there but so I'll try and just do it briefly for you from Mark's gospel so first of all um, as I said, the Evangelion or good news, wasn't primarily a religious thing. It was a political thing. And so it was used in a, of an event, an historical event that happened, something that had totally changed the world. So, for example, there's ancient Roman inscription which says, the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. It was about his birth and his rise to become the emperor also it was used multiple times you can see many different inscriptions and writings about events that have happened in history when the greeks pushed back the persians in various battles they talked about they had won the battle we have fought for you we have won the battle and you are now free you are not going to be slaves to the persians and so they sent out evangelists, people, to tell the good news. Isn't it strange? We think of it as such a religious word, but the Roman emperors sent out these messengers of the good news, this life-changing event in history that had changed everything for them. So what did the gospel mean to jesus that's a really good question because i think sometimes our problems is we've often um put the gospel define the gospel by paul's letters and so on rather than thinking back like jesus so what did jesus the gospel mean to jesus and the gospel writers so Mark chapter 1 says the beginning of the good news, that's gospel, about Jesus, the Messiah. In my NIV, it says Jesus Christ, which is the same word, son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way. A voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And then after that, there's, it, there's a narrative about John the Baptist and then Jesus gets baptised by John the Baptist. And then verse 14, 
after John was put in prison, Jesus went about Galilee proclaiming the good news, that's the gospel, evangelion of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near or here is here. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus says the time has come. He is looking back to the Old Testament prophets, the promises of God. As we saw in verse chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, where John the Baptist is the person that has, is, is the herald coming ahead of Jesus in Isaiah and Malachi. Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament promises. That's why the time has now come. And then this, the second thing is the kingdom of God. Jesus talks so much about the kingdom of God. Didn't that? that was his main topic of his, his talking, his preaching, if you like. What does the kingdom of God mean? Well, kingdom of God is about the rule of God, the reign of God. Where is God reigning? And the coming of the kingdom is about God putting everything right that's what the old testament promises were all about god coming and putting the world to right because because of the fall the world was broken people were not doing what god wanted to do but the kingdom of god is about bringing in god's god's rule and reign that on earth the will of god is done as in heaven the overthrow of enemies justice so the gospel to jesus the gospel is about the bringing in of god's kingdom and it actually it comes through him so mark gives us right at the beginning of his gospel he says in chapter one verse one the beginning of the good news about jesus messiah the son of god the word beginning there is an echo of in the beginning the world was made there's the echo of the new creation something huge some event huge thing is happening in history the sense of new creation the gospel the good news of jesus again that something happening in history that's what it meant mark was being really um subvertive he was saying you know it's not about the 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 caesars it's about jesus he is the true king he is the earth-shattering history maker he is the one who is changing the world and then jesus which means savior christ which messiah or king promise of the old testament son of god Caesar was called son of God. Again, that subversive message. There's a bit of debate about whether son of God seems to mean Jesus was divine or whether it just means Messiah. I think Tim Keller says divine. N.T. Wright says it's a Messiah term. So make up your mind. I don't know. Some, perhaps someone will tell me in a minute. Um, but... Um, so then there's the response to this. This is so earth-shattering. This is God breaking in. So there has to be a response. 
And so there's that word repentance. Repentance is about changing our minds. Instead of living our world in this story of, say, consumerism, materialism, all about me, we're meant to be living, we're meant to be getting life from God's world and God's kingdom and his way of doing life. So then it goes on and to, to believe the good news just doesn't mean intellectual assent, as I'm sure you know, it's about putting your weight and trust, your life down behind those earth-shattering events that Jesus has come. And then, of course, very couple of lines after, what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, oh, now you're saved, you're going to heaven, don't bother. He says, come follow me. There's a call to discipleship. There's a call to apprenticeship. There's a call to be the co-workers who are bringing in the kingdom of God. The point is Jesus wants way more than for us to have a ticket to heaven. He is after changing us to be more like Jesus. He is after us being participants in bringing in God's just rule in the world. See, even the word, another way of looking at it is the word eternal life. We think, well, you know, I've said the prayer, the four spiritual principles. I'm going to heaven. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. And eternal life, actually, we think, well, it's a life going on, 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 on. And that's true. But actually, it has a quality of life. It's about God's zoe. The Greek word Zoe, his, his life, his abundant life. It's about the life that we're supposed to have with God and how the world was meant to be. There is that. And so as we believe, we have it. So we, can actually, we actually are meant to have something of that quality life here and now. It's meant to change us. And obviously what happens is when we commit to Jesus, the presence of the Holy Spirit begins to come in, into us in a greater and greater measure. And so we are called to progressively show the true life of Jesus, that eternal life. In fact, the early church didn't talk about four Gospels. Even well into the second century, they talked about Gospel. And the four Gospels were, they talked about the four Gospels as one Gospel, one good news. And why did they call, why did, why at the top of your text about Mark's Gospel, why is it called Gospel? They called them Gospels for a reason. As Scott McKnight humorously puts, they called the Gospels the Gospels because they are the Gospel. The good news is written in Mark's Gospel, John's Gospel, Luke, Matthew. According to so the Gospel according to Mark, for example. So we often think the Gospel is, you know, John 3.16, and that's it. But actually the Gospel is the whole of the how Jesus, the story of Jesus, is fulfilling the Old Testament story. That's another, Scott McKnight puts it again like that. That the story of Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament story. Whoops. So, I would, so my sort of very tentative summary, because actually it's quite, 
in some ways quite complex. So I can understand how we don't always grab this in our minds and we try and simplify it and then we don't really quite get the whole picture. Is that if you look at the Gospels, Jesus, there's, there's massive in the Gospels about the cross, isn't there? It takes up so much of the chapters. That's key. So Jesus was talking about the kingdom, but he was bringing in the rule of God, the reign of God. That comes about Jesus defeating the dark powers, the, the kingdom of Satan. As Jesus comes and brings his kingdom, he is pushing out the kingdom of darkness and the cross does that and then there is that sense that you and I are meant to be temples of the Holy Spirit we are meant to begin to have that eternal life and God is asking us to follow Jesus and to show his love and his gospel his good news to the world that hope the be hope carriers as someone talked about hope okay so are there any questions? Have I evoked questions or confused you? <laughs> um, what do you feel about all that? Don't have to be questions. Or comments. And that's fine as well. And we'll have some time at the end as well to um, uh, ask some other questions, okay? different um, accounts yeah why four different accounts of, of the life of Jesus not three or five gosh that's a good question I don't know the answer to that one anyone have got an answer yeah Yeah, yeah. So there, so there is four different perspectives, but why were there four rather than three? I mean, three would have been good because of the Trinity. Um, Carolyn, you got any answers? Okay, yeah, I mean, I think key is that they, they, they felt that the authority and there needed to be people who are close to Jesus as, as his uh, disciples, the original 12 disciples and so on, yeah. That's their sense of authority, yeah. Um, no, 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 exactly. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to just read? Can you repeat that slightly? Oh, repeat it. Oh no. Which bit? So when when they were writing, they didn't have a sense of oh, I'm writing gospel number one or gospel number two. They they didn't. They weren't writing for the Christian canon. They were just writing the accounts of what they've seen and heard, and then it was it was the church together. 
um, trying to figure out which, which of the many different writings to preserve as authoritative for the community. So it's an act of recognition that there's four rather than a, a prior plan. They, they didn't set out to have four. Okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think probably... Um, obviously, what happened, it was Peter, for example, was telling the stories of Jesus. And as it began, he was getting older and older, and um, so it made sense to write that down. So that so Mark was the one that wrote down what, what Peter's stories of Jesus. And um, Matthew was, the gospel was one of the disciples as well. He obviously felt as a tax collector, probably quite literate, he would also have written stuff down. Um, so, and Luke, as we read in the beginning of Luke, he says that he wanted to write an orderly account of what had happened. And John obviously was a disciple, want, wrote a, a later reflection on Jesus. Um, was some thought, that there is an argument that why there was four, some people have said, and there was often this, was at the beginning of Ezekiel, there is a, Ezekiel sees a vision of God, and um, he sees God in four different living creatures um, and those four living creatures have often thought to reflect the four gospels so you have an ox which means a servant so one of the gospels is associated with um, I'm, I'm this, doing this from memory so and there's also a so if you go and have a look at Ezekiel chapter 1, you'll see there are four different faces or four different representations of this God. And therefore, they've often, people have often thought that they represent the four Gospels. Okay. So, really interesting question. Um, something for you to think about. <laughs> okay. So, what I'm going to do now is... Um, I'm going to talk again, so I was hoping, so hopefully it's been a little bit interactive, so you can, it's about 15 minutes talk here, I'm going to talk about why I think Mark's gospel is reasonably historically reliable. I've given an hour's talk before, and even then I was struggling to keep it within an hour, so I am only going to give you a little bit of this this morning. Um, so, we're on to the next slide. You see, even, as we said, the word gospel was something that was political, happened in time, real historical event. So, there's good reasons to believe that this is historical. This is something that really, really happened. And for many of you, you this is not a question that you really ask, because you know Jesus, You've experienced Jesus. You know God. You know as you read the Bible, it has a ring of truth. You know this is a sense of God speaking to you. This isn't a question that you really need to ask. Is this, is this Mark's gospel historical? Well, I know my God. I know whom I have believed, as Paul says. This is something. And, and, this is, and they're all good reasons. But I would just want to give you a slightly different answer. Because we live in a world that is highly sceptical of everything. Disinformation everywhere. False news. Don't trust everything. So many films say, trust no one. 
And then you're watching this film and they're trusting the person that you think, no, you shouldn't be trusting them. So there's this world of incredible skepticism. The world has completely changed. So, so there's deconstructionism, if you like. So I remember when I went to university, I was already a Christian and I doubted my faith very significantly. I wasn't sure whether I could trust the Gospels had they been changed over time? Did I know that this is what was this about Jesus? Um, but I found that there were compelling reasons to believe that the Gospels are reasonably historical. I'm not trying to argue this morning that the Bible is the word of God in the next 15 minutes. But what I'm just trying to say is when we read Mark's Gospel, there are good reasons to believe that it is historical of what actually happened so you might say i'm starting from the bottom up i'm starting from really from the basis of right from the bottom and i'm saying so so how do we know whether an old document is historical there are three things people look for they look for manuscript authority they say and that's one area another area is internal evidence as you read it and the third area is external evidence. Is there stuff outside of the Bible that supports what's written in it? The first one is manuscript authority. If the thing is, we don't have Mark's original letter. And that's true of so many of ancient documents. We don't have the originals. But what we can look at with this science of textual criticism is they look for how old are the documents that we do have? Are they very close to when the gospel was written? And in this case, with Mark's gospel, they are very close in comparison to other documents. Furthermore, what they look at is they say, um, how many documents do we have? For some of the things, documents that historians trust might only have 10 fairly old copies of a document. But we have literally ten, tens of thousands of documents. And then the other next thing to think about is, do, they, or do these documents that we have, do they agree with one another? Because if they're all different, then you say, well, something's been changed somewhere along the line. We have no confidence. But if you look at all the documents, then I've heard quoted that only 1% of the Gospels or the New Testament is there some variation. And within that, none of that is, ma is about major doctrinal changes they are about few words here and there in most cases so the gospels in terms of manuscript authority is in completely different leagues in fact it's several leagues above everything else so that's the first thing the second so so what i'm going to do is i'm going to spend the time talking about internal evidence and the first thing that people work on and this is from Gregory Boyd's book Letters to a Skeptic which I found really helpful he talks about these five criteria the first question the first thing was the author in a position to know what he or she is writing about 
Does the text claim to be an eyewitness account or is it based on hearsay? Well, there's a lot of good evidence which say that um, this was written down by Mark and Mark was... Uh, closely associated with Peter I mean for, for one thing why would you say why would you attach the gospel to Mark who ran away who was who deserted Paul on the on the missionary journeys there was a sense of which you know why wouldn't you associate it with somebody more reliable like Peter Mark was probably a little bit disrespected because of his early walking with Jesus that he 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 walked away you know, there was the problem with Paul and Barnabas. Um, but anyway, the early church has attached this to Mark. And then we have a chap called Papias talks about Mark. So, so in um, Tim Keller's book, King's Cross, he writes this. What, who is Mark? The earliest and most important source of an answer comes from Papias, bishop of Hierapolis, until, AD, until 130 AD, who said that Mark had been secretary and translator for Peter, one of the first 12 of Jesus' disciples or followers. And it says that he wrote accurately all that Peter remembered. This testimony is particularly significant since there is evidence that Papias who lived from 60 to 135 AD, knew John, the apostle, another of Jesus' first and closest disciples personally. So there's really good evidence to suggest that Mark was the recorder of Peter's stories, what Peter had said. And then Richard Borkman has written... A, a, a book which I haven't read but a lot of people quote called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses and Richard Borkman writes this or this volume demonstrates he says that Mark mentions Peter proportionately more than any of the other gospels so there's more of Peter in Mark than any other gospel and if you go through the book of Mark you'll see that nothing happens in which Peter was not present the whole, the entire Gospel of Mark, then, is almost certainly the eyewitness testimony of Peter. So that's the first thing. It's probably worth saying, so when was Mark's Gospel written? Well, most people seem to say something like AD 60. Some say AD 65. Steve's got a question. Okay. Right, so Jesus was probably born about 4 BC, yeah? They got the timeline slightly wrong. So, so before Christ, AD 0 was where they thought he was born. But, and so Jesus' life and ministry was probably around AD 30 to AD 33. And so what you're asking is the gap between the 30 and the 60, right? Okay, so why did, so Jesus, so first of all, why do we think it's written in AD 60? 
and Mark is often considered the first gospel that was written down. Well, we know that Peter died in, in probably at the hands of Nero in AD 65. We also know that if Mark's gospel was the first gospel, then it must have been written before Luke's gospel. And Luke writes his first gospel and then he writes Acts after Luke and yet he ends with Paul in prison in Acts 28 and stops there so that's and yet we know there was a bit more of Paul's life we know that Paul died in probably AD 65 and therefore Acts was written before AD 65 and therefore Luke was written before AD 65 and therefore Mark was written before AD 65 right understand that logic and also none of the gospels talk about the fall of jerusalem in ad 70 so that's good reason for that now so this is a bit of a sidebar but i think it's really important since you've asked the question how do we know essentially that if if peter was wandering around with jesus in ad 33 ad 30 33 how do we know when he wrote it at ad 60 how do we know that it's reasonably okay yeah is that what you're saying yeah 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 but i think what we don't and this is quite a sidebar but anyway we'll go for it um which um well first of all they were an oral culture i think emma wall mentioned that they knew their stories my dad is 92 he has in lockdown he wrote about all his family stories right not because for him to know or show what he'd done but for future generations he wrote it down with all the holidays we'd been in what we'd done and if you listen to him he will tell you the stories so i can tell you some of his stories because he's told me so many times right he knows it all and i think that's just a little microcosm of how things were then and even more so, because it wasn't a hugely written culture, they learnt stories. They learnt their stories. They learnt about what, about what defined them as a people. And interestingly, people have done research. Um, Greg Boyd writes extensively in his book, uh, Jesus Legend, showing that it isn't legend. Um, writes a, a lot about oral histories. They've gone to... Uh, tribes in Africa in various places and um, indigenous tribes and they have such strong oral traditions and they hold on to their stories and and they have story keepers and people who put who transfer the story to the next story keeper they there is such a, a zealous holding on to that and memorizing and one of the things people were very very skeptical in the 19th century 18th century 19th century about whether people could remember long stories but actually they found through research in 2020 20 and 20th century that people are remembering huge long stories and so there is an incredible confidence about the oral tradition that we previously didn't really realize and then um papius again talks about matthew writing stuff down and and i think that he probably wrote stuff down before his gospel finally came out in its final form that he'd written notes of what was going on and you can imagine a tax collector who was used to writing and so on and actually the jews were a bit more advanced because they were a people of the book 
that they actually were people that did write stuff down. So I think that Matthew wrote stuff down. And when you read at the beginning of Luke's gospel, Luke says, I'm going to give an orderly account. Some have already written something down. Is he just referring to Mark and Matthew? Or is he referring to some other things? So I think there's a strong reasons for us to believe that what Peter, that Mark wrote down was an accurate description of Jesus' life. I mean, you wouldn't forget some of the things. You, the things that you remember are, your, are the events in your life that were very powerful. I think that Peter would remember going up onto the transfiguration and seeing Jesus transfigured and remembering the voice from heaven. He's not going to forget that, is he? And in fact, in 2 Peter, he says, I will make every effort before my death to write down the stories that you have heard. Perhaps he's even referring to him asking Mark to write them down. So anyway, we, so that's the eyewitness thing. The, um, another thing would be is that the reason why we know that it's first century and really strongly suggests that it's uh, um, authentic um, is when you think about the names. So how many Simons can we name in the New Testament? Simon, Peter, Simon the Tanner in Acts. Sorry? Simon Magus, yeah. Simon the Sorcerer, I think that's the same one, yeah. Simon the Leper, Simon the Pharisee. Um, so, so in 2002, an Israeli scholar did a study of, not sure how exactly he did it, but he studied all the first names of that time and the, how common they were. And, and Richard Borkman has done a, a study of that, which shows that the, there's an incredible correlation about the, the, the popularity of certain Bible New Testament names to what this guy in Israel found as well. So there's lots of things like that that make sense, that show that what we have is an eyewitness account, not something that is made up much later on. So the second criteria, and we need to run a little bit here, is about... Does the document contain specific or irrelevant material? First-hand sources are typically full of material that are not essential to the story, whereas fabricated accounts tend to be generalised. So often there are throwaway remarks which are not really important to the story. So the easiest one for me to, to tell you now is um, in John 20, which you'll look at in, hopefully in a minute, where it says that John is a faster runner than Peter because he got to the tomb first. And are we really fussed about that? So there's lots of things like that that are put in that have, if you were fabricating it, you just wouldn't put that kind of story in. But the one I wanted just to major on is the third thing is, does the document contain self-damaging material? If a document includes a, a negative image of the author, or hero, it suggests truthfulness. And Gregory Boyd identifies 16 types 
in Mark's gospel alone of self-damaging material. One of them that I like is that in Mark 3 verse 21, his family come to, to get him because he is out of his mind. So even his family who knew Jesus really well, they're saying, he's mad, he's out of his mind. What's he doing? This is crazy. What about if you were fabricating to get fabricating the gospel to say Jesus is God? Um, why would you put in something like that that your own family think you are a mad? You're you're not of your right mind. You just wouldn't do that. So there's a whole load of things like that. Peter's denial of Jesus, for example. Etc., uh, etc. Et and then, if you were fabricating this gospel, say in AD 60, um, wouldn't you put in something about the controversies of the church of the day? So, for example, um, should Gentile Christians follow the food laws and the sacrifice laws and hand washing and things like that? There's nothing in there like that. Would you, you would say, what about the Jews? Should they be, the, the, the Gentiles, should they be circumcised? They put something in Jesus' words, wouldn't they? But there's nothing like that either. And wouldn't, what about the controversy about spiritual gifts that Paul has to deal with in Corinth? Wouldn't you say something about that in Jesus' Gospels? They're just, there aren't those things that you, you might expect to, someone to fabricate and put in. And then the, the fourth one, which is we've sort of touched on a little bit, um, is the document reasonably self-contained? It used to really worry me that the Gospels were slightly different from one another. But actually, I think that's now a strength. You see, the Gospels present a consistent portrait of Jesus and what he did, as well as the events that surround his life. There is a, the vast majority is incredibly similar. If the four accounts were individually fabricated, where did this consistency come from? And yet they're incredibly consistent. But also, there are significant differences in each account. Sue mentioned that the transfiguration, three different, there are variations in the transfiguration account, Mark chapter 9, for example, showing the relative differences of their perspectives. If they were all fabricated together, they'd all be the same. But actually, what this is saying is we've got four different perspectives on the important aspects of what happened. And that's true when people tell stories, they will pick out certain things and leave out other things. But the gen, if they're reliable witnesses, they will say the same kind of stuff. And that's what we've got in the Gospels. And then the other thing, the fifth thing is, um, is there evidence for legendary exaggeration? And that's the thing that if... The, the Jesus seminar group of people said basically because there are miracles this can't be right but they've already decided God doesn't exist and there aren't miracles so it can't happen but C.S. Lewis the, of Narnia Chronicles wrote this at one point and he was professor 
and an expert, Professor of Oxford, an expert on ancient mythology. So he spent all his life looking at ancient documents and things. And he said this, as a literary historian, I am perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they are not legends. I've read a great deal of legend, and I'm quite clear that they are not the same sort of things. The Gospels do include supernatural acts, but the accounts that we find in the Gospels don't have any of the features of ancient mythology. They are very sober. And, for example, I mean, Carolyn mentioned other Gospels, and I think most of those are quite well documented as being second century and evolved with Gnosticism and so on. But, and, but, but, but one Gospel, I'm not quite sure it's when it was written, but the Gospel of Peter was a, is a, a Gospel, right? And if in that, it, it has a resurrection it, quote in it, resurrection experience, which talks about there being, and I'm going to work this from memory, but basically it talks about the angels taking Jesus' body up to heaven and, 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 there's, a, and there's a cross in the sky and there's a voice from heaven which says, now you need, to, you, you need to go and preach the gospel. There's this exaggeration of what happens, but when we read the gospels, that we have, there's no, the, the, the event, there is no picture or, there's no full description of the resurrection. I mean, surely that was the most important event, and yet it's not described. So what happened with the Gospel of Peter? Someone thought, well, I better, I better write something into this. It just shows how down-to-earth and sober, as C.S. Lewis puts our Gospels. Um, now, what I thought we would do now is in your groups, if you're going to need a Bible, you're going to need... To, so for about five, ten minutes, I'd like you to read John chapter 20, verse 1 to 8. And if, in case you're worried, we're... I know we're a little bit over time, but we're, we're just going to do this group exercise and then we're going to finish, okay? So we're, we're about five, ten minutes away from landing, okay? If you need a Bible, Sue has found. So what I want you to do is I want you to read uh, John chapter 20, verse 1 to 8, and I want to see whether you can spot these five things that I've put on this screen. I know the writing's a bit smaller, but 